I'm John Kane, and this is a special Indigenous Peoples Day Resistance Radio. I want to thank you for joining me. You know, and I, I can't think of a better way to start off um, this conversation uh, without um, giving you a, a little bit more Murray Porter uh, on this special day. So uh, here's the, the, probably the best way to introduce uh, this special program. Yeah, I just had to give a little bit of taste of 1492 by Murray Porter. Um, look, I don't... The thing about Indigenous Peoples Day is uh, I, it, I have a hard time calling it a day of celebration. And, you know, part of uh, folks like me who have really tried um, to tackle the, the day that it was previously known as or is still widely known as, which is Columbus Day... Um, my fight has always been to eliminate that and to question that and to expose who Christopher Columbus really was. The fact that the solution to uh, Columbus Day was Indigenous Peoples Day, all right, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. But, you know, look, if we're going to talk about Indigenous peoples and what the history is, I, I got to counter what, what some people would be willing to say. I, I saw in Indian country today, for instance, this week, and they talked about how the day represents and acknowledges the place of, in, of indigenous people in American society and the inclusion of our culture and our traditions. And I got to tell you, I reject that. I reject that. My fight and the fight of the people that, that, that I engage with is not about inclusion, not about being uh, a significant or even a, a, a minuscule part of American society. It's about distinction. It's about asserting who we are. Our, our history is a history of resistance. That's why they call the show Resistance Radio. Our history is not about trying to become a part of American society. Look, I understand that our voice has to make it out there in uh, in the media, in, in not just mainstream media, but in on radio uh, networks and programs like like this, like WBAI in New York City and WPFW in, in Washington D.C. And I appreciate that um, that airtime, and it's part of the reason that that I do advocate for listeners to to support these radio stations and do so. In the name of this show, and and look, I I, I think it's great. I, I'm you know I'm thrilled to be on the air, 
live in Washington and in New York City today on a special day, on a day that's not normally my, uh, my time slot on, on Thursday or Friday, and the fact that I'm on in the morning. I'm hoping that this program uh, invites uh, other listeners to, to not only for this show, but for, for my normal resistance radio show. And I'm hoping that people will perhaps are hearing me for the first time. They've never heard a native person. And maybe because it's Indigenous People's Day, they expect me to come on and, uh, and, and be very celebratory. And that's not what I do. I mean, what I do is I kind of expose what has happened, not only historically, but what's happening today. It's what I do. That's part of the, the, the obligation that I have. And, and of course being afforded this kind of, uh, this time on, on radio, including this, this special day, I feel like I've got to perhaps make, uh, make points that I haven't made before. I mean, I've, I've got to plow some old earth. I've got to still talk about the fact that in this day, 2023, not only do we have schools across the United States that mock Native people with their sports mascots, with their school mascots, literally with non-Native people playing Indian as a part of their high school and their grade school education. I mean, I've, I've got to bring that up. I've got to bring up the fact that, that I have played a pivotal role in getting a statewide ban in New York State. And yet, there are still four schools, four schools in New York State that are suing the state for this ban on the use of Native mascots. I mean, they're, they're, they're so committed to this idea that they have stolen our identity with these mascots, that they're willing to spend resources that should be going to children and their education, they're willing to spend money on frivolous lawsuits. I've got the school that I took on originally, my whole old high school, Cambridge, New York, that has been involved in not just one lawsuit, but now they're appealing that lawsuit. And that, ironically, those arguments are going to be heard tomorrow. They're going to be heard tomorrow, the day after Indigenous Peoples Day, the Cambridge Indians, my, my old high school, my alma mater, is going to be arguing uh, in state court to, uh, in a suit against the New York State Department of Education for their right to keep calling themselves and claiming. And, and look, it's not just calling themselves. It is identity theft. I mean, there's no other example of, of a mascot where the people so identify and take that identity of the mascot. I mean, you don't hear people saying, well, I'm... I'm a bear. I was a bear in kindergarten and grade school and high school, and I'm a bear. No, you don't ever hear anybody say that. But you hear people say it all the time about being an Indian or a warrior or a savage or a redskin. And I, and I, gotta, I have to bring it up. Look, in many circles, we don't actually say that word. We, we refer to it as the R word. And it's, and it's ironic because it's a racial slur, right? And most stations, including these stations, they won't allow me to say the, the N-word. I mean, it's not, I don't know that it's an FCC violation. It's, it's, it's a network pol uh, um, policy. It's, uh, and look, and I don't blame them, but it's funny. I can say the R-word. I can, I can say, because even a, a, a you know, progressive thinking station like, uh, like the Pacifica Network, WBFI and WBFW, they can't put that name, the R-word, in the same category as the N-word. And, and look, I'm, I'm, we're making progress on this front, but, but I, just, I just have to point it out. But yeah, so there's four schools. They're not only my school. There are three schools in Long Island. Two of them that are fighting 
not necessarily to keep a quote-unquote native mascot, but to keep calling themselves the warriors, which they have used in conjunction with native imagery. They want to argue that, you know, that it's a violation of their constitutional rights to, to say that they can't use that word. Look, you can say these words. Any individual, quote-unquote, American, can say, and they can say the N-word for that matter. But you can't, you can't use it in a public school as the name of your, uh, of your, of your school, the nickname of your school. That's the bottom line. I sat on the New York State Education Department's uh, Indigenous Mascots Advisory Council, and I was a part of putting in place those guidelines that included if you were a school using a word that wasn't necessarily solely defined as, as a native word or a native reference, like um, raiders or, or warriors or, you know, some that are, that perhaps you could come up with, a, with another imagery. But if you've used those words recently, and, and especially up till now, with a native imagery, the name's got to go too. You're not just going to stick a Spartan in there and say, "Okay, we're not the we're uh, not we're still the Warriors," because you don't end the um, the identity theft towards native people simply because you change the logo. Because I've got to tell you, in many of these these schools, the logo isn't as prominent as the name. And if the name has always been associated with Native people, you can't just say, well, now we're calling it, uh, we're, we're using a different image someplace. I mean, uh, uh, you, you just can't, you're not going to get away with that. And that's what two schools in Long Island are fighting, are, are suing against. And they're suing in federal court. And then there's Massapequa, which is suing to invalidate the entire ban in the first place. They're claiming that their constitutional, um, you know, uh, right to speech is being violated, and uh, and then they're taking this on. And and I and I brought this up, but look, the current commissioner of the Department of Education, Dr. Betty Rosa. Some could try to argue that that this is you know, and, and this is the argument that, that we hear all the time, especially as this issue has been brought into the culture wars. They argue that um, that it's just you know more woke wokeism or critical race theory. Uh, replacement theory, all of these these culture wars uh, tropes that uh, that the right uses. But I have to remind people that while the current uh, NYSED, New York State Department of Education, is essentially um, exists with a democratic uh, uh, governor, a previous commissioner, Dr. Richard Mills, in 2001, ordered the same thing. But he didn't put a drop-dead date on it. He didn't say you have to have them gone by the end of this school year or that school year. He said, you need to eliminate these. It was a directive from the Commissioner of Education in New York in 2001. That was during the Pataki administration. So the argument that this is just about um, the, the left and the, the elite left you know, trying to uh, promote white guilt or whatever else. Richard Mills was, uh, was the commissioner under George Pataki, under a Republican governor. And the question that I have for schools like um, the three in Long Island that are suing, why did you sue back then? That's when the initial order came to remove this stuff. And I would argue that there should be a statute of limitations. And, and I know some people say, well, uh, he didn't, it wasn't a mandate. It wasn't a ban. Yeah, but he told you. And, and actually, Richard Mills did withstand some, uh, some legal challenges to his, to his order, to his directive. And, and, and he held. But I would argue that, that if these schools had done what Richard Mills had said, even if they took a, 
a long time to do it. Even if they just phased it out over time, you know, your, your uniforms become tattered, so you replace them. You just, and, and I got to tell you, many schools don't put their nicknames and their logos on the uniforms anymore. But some do, and some pile it on heavy. They put it on their gym floor. They put it on, on the murals on the wall. They put it on their, their, their sports fields. They, they put it everywhere. I, I go back to my old high school, Cambridge. Look, they've got it on folding chairs. They've got it on every banner, every, you know, the, the letterhead, every sign on outside the school. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's almost absurd, you know, how, how, how much that these schools didn't just reject the order from Richard Mills over 20 years ago, but doubled down or tripled down or quadrupled down on it. They, they expanded the use of this. Not every school, but some schools. And, and these are the schools that are the most adamant. So as I talk to you here on Indigenous Peoples Day, I've got to point out that we are still under some level of assault. And of course, it gets deflected. Oh, yeah, this is nothing, about, nothing to do with Native people. This is about erasing Native people. No, it isn't. If we're telling white people that you can't play Indian anymore, that's not erasing us. That's trying to adjust your behavior. Blackface is no longer um, tolerated in, in American society, but redface still seems to be. We can still see people going to Kansas City football games or, or Atlanta baseball games uh, you know, or, or, or Chicago hockey games. Yes, we, we, ha we have gotten it eliminated from the Washington football team. We have gotten it eliminated from the, the Cleveland baseball team and most of the NCAA. But we saw challenges right up to recently. Uh, we saw a, a, a widely distributed and, uh, and signed on to um, petition in Washington, D.C., trying to bring back the R word for the Washington football team. And, and it's not going to happen, but, but you can see how much we have to push back against something that, you know, many people think this is a trivial argument. And while the mascot issue may not seem like the highest order of oppression that Native people experience, the problem is that it contributes to ignorance about who we are. It, it casts us as relics of the past. Look, nobody uses a, a, a modern-day version of a Native person for their mascot. It's always, you know, a you know, 17th or 18th century image, as if that's what we were and that's what we are that we no longer exist today. I mean, there, there's about 20 or 30% of the American population, the U.S. population, who, doesn't, who don't even know that Native people still exist. They think that we're, we're gone. And why would they think that? Well, Hollywood, TV, mascots, there's a whole lot of reasons. And those who do know that we exist, they really don't know how we exist. And so it comes back to, to the position that I take on this thing. I'm not an American. I'm not a U.S. citizen. They, they passed a law trying to force me to be one. And I'm not saying all Native people share the same sentiment or the same view on this that I do. But there's many of us that do. We can't talk about genocide in the United States and not talk about their success. Because there has been success. Look, you cannot kill a people, enslave a people. You cannot take a people and go through hundreds of years of indoctrination and assimilation. They literally took our children, took them away from us, put them in prison-like schools, funded by state and federal governments, um, run by, by churches, 
run by churches with dosages, full, full, full on dosages of uh, Christian indoctrination, changing their names. If you, if you came into those schools with, with a name that wasn't biblical, you were going to get your name changed. And they're going to take, take a, a number off of, a, a name off of the wall and say, okay, this is, you're now Joshua. I mean, if you go across quote unquote Indian country, you're going to hear some of the most biblical names that there, there exists, both first names and, uh, and last names. You know, we've had a resurgence in, uh, in our language and many more traditional names that are being used. But you're going to find the, the Marys and the Sarahs and the, and the Joshuas and the Jacobs and the, you know, uh, all of these. My, my name, my name is John. <laughs> this is a direct result of, of, the, of the Christian indoctrination that came. And while I can sit here as an example of resistance to that, I have to, you know, I, I've got to talk about how pervasive some of that has been. Look, we, we have very specific Native um, uh, traditions, culture, cer ceremonies that have been, I, I hate to say permanent, but they've been severely altered by much of this. Our funeral. When, when, when our loved ones pass away, we, we have a very specific way that we address that. And we, we talk about um, trying to address those who are mourning so, you know, so grieve, you know, grieving so badly. And we talk about soothing their throat with, with you know, clean spring water so they can no longer feel choked up every time they try to speak. So, you know, so we, we both physically and metaphorically clear their throat. We take the softest doe skin that we have, and we and we try to wipe away the tears and the grieving and the blindness, essentially, that people can experience during grief. We um, we, we we symbolically take the, the seagull's wing and and we clean the ears so so the these people who are grieving can hear the hear the the beauty in the world still. They can hear the birds and they can hear the children. And they can hear the laughter, the, and they can hear their the people who are concerned about them express their, you know, their feelings towards them. So that's part of our funeral. But we also refer to our loved ones returning to our mother. You know, we, we talk about the future generations as those faces that have not come up out of our mother yet. That's, what, that's how we refer to our future generations. And when we pass, we, we describe that as returning to our mother, being welcomed by our mother. And, and what do we do? We literally place them in the earth, in our, in our mother. But today, if, if you have ever seen a notification from a native person about a loved one passing, there's a good chance you heard somebody, and even some of the most traditional people say, well, such and such has, um, has begun their journey to the sky world to be with the creator. That's not our culture. I don't know if it's anybody's culture, any indigenous culture here. That is just replacing words, Christian words, like sky world and heaven and creator and God. But that's how much, how pervasive the indoctrination and the, and the assimilation has been. I, you know, let me explain another one. Here's another example of this. Wampum. Wampum is something that, that native people have used, and I'm holding my fist up for those who are seeing me on Facebook Live, because our biggest uses of wampum were, were strings of wampum. You know, we ever, everybody thinks of the wampum belts, and, and, and those things are in, you know, incredible pieces of, of art 
Um, but these are like these mnemonic devices. And what you do is you, we use wampum to, to carry a message. You know, some people, some of my people say we literally put those words in the wampum so those words can come back out. Well, we, we use these, these strings of, of wampum beads, and these are beads that are made from, from shells. And, and for, for those of us that are Haudenosaunee, most of those wampum beads came from our Algonquin friends uh, on the coast. Long Island was fam famous, or known as Long Island. Uh, I still have friends down in um, Puspatuck who are manufacturers of, of wampum. Yeah, not the old traditional way, but, uh, um, but they still produce wampum today. But when we take those, those beads, those wampum shells, and we would put them on a string, and we would put them in a certain place, and these wampum could, mention, could, could represent everything from a, a title of a, a, a what, well, what you would call a chief. We'd call it Rio um, so, so these wampum strings could represent everything from a person's position to the words that have been gone out throughout the Confederacy or from you know, community to community to deliver... Um, either an invitation to a meeting or uh, to, uh, to inform somebody what's going on. But in what we consider the most classic sense is our, were these, these what we call wampum belts. And we would construct by weaving these, these beads into sometimes very, very elaborate designs to capture everything from uh, what we call the Hanawatha belt. The, the formation or the re reformation of the Confederacy, those five, you know, image or um, uh, images that are that are on a, a purple background, white wampum on a purple background, uh, which represent, you know, the the Mohawks to the east, the Oneidas uh, to, to the left of them, the um, Onondagas in the center, the Cayugas, and then the Senecas. You know, so that's an example. We have everything from you know, friendship treaties to uh, what we call the fan belt. We've, we've got all these, these, um, these elaborate designs. Uh, one, of the, the, one of our original belts, we, we describe as the two-row the wampum, or the deohade. Uh, and what it means is two paths. And this is one of our oldest agreements that we put to a belt, and we would offer it to other Native peoples that, that had different cultures than us. And so what we would we would do is we'd offer this as a representation of a commitment to peaceful coexistence. We would literally say that this is um, the two paths that we're on. And we won't, we won't try to steer each other's path. We won't cross each other's path. We won't try to lead somebody's, uh, somebody's belief system a different way. We're, we're on the same path on our mother. But when white people showed up, Europeans showed up, and we thought it was right to offer them a message of peaceful coexistence. They didn't have a path. So we, we tweaked the narrative that would go with that belt. So we no longer talk about two paths. We talk about two vessels on the river of life, your ship, our canoe. But many of our people don't know. They, they forget that we, we had this agreement long before the first European ships let, uh, showed up on our shores. So this is an example of, of erasure, of indoctrination, because now there are many Native people who, when you hear the two-row two wampum, all they can think of is uh, our two, you know, two vessels on, on the river of life, if they can even think, think of that. But it gets worse. When the colonists were, uh, 
were engaged in their battle for independence from Great Britain, and you know alliances were you know were broken and, and forged and that kind of stuff. There was an effort by the first president of the United States, George Washington, to try to um, uh, pitch a different relationship with with my people, the Haudenosaunee, and he commissioned a belt to be made, and not just a a wampum belt, you know. A couple of feet long. He commissioned this, you know, this belt to be this massive uh, belt to be made, and it's called the, the Washington Belt. And in it, and he had the Oneidas, you know, somebody from Oneida um, manufactured, produced his belt. And in it, he created these images of 13 large men standing uh, hand in hand, um, and towards the center, you have two little guys on either side of a, of a dwelling, you know, or allegedly a longhouse. And over the heads of those people was something that came from the big men. Those 13 men represented the 13 colonies. This belt clearly was a depiction of subjugation, of, of a superiority, inferiority relationship between our people, the little guys in the center by the longhouse, and the 13 colonies around us. He had that belt produced. He never had an agreement that, that uh, or, or a treaty that... that had that narrative, in fact, the closest uh, treaty to the time that that the belt was constructed was the Canandaigua Treaty, which says nothing like that. In fact, Canandaigua, uh, which you know, coming into November will be uh, what what many Native people go out to the Great Lakes, uh, where Canandaigua is located, or I'm sorry, the, the Finger Lakes, where Canandaigua is located, and they'll have their Canandaigua Treaty Day. And they're going to pull out that George Washington belt, which has nothing to do with that. I mean, in the, in the Canandaigua Treaty, the United States says, we acknowledge that, the, that your land is yours. Yes, we're going to talk about how reshaping the borders, because that's what these always were. But we're going to acknowledge that your land is yours and we'll never claim the same. That's an absolute contradiction to the what would become the known as the doctrine of Christian discovery, where it says we didn't, we didn't own land. But Washington's people negotiated, and it's mentioned three times in this treaty, that the land is ours and the United States will never claim the same, nor will we ever be disturbed in the free use and enjoyment of that land. That's the language from the Canandaigua Treaty. There's nothing in there that says anything about subjugation. In fact, there's a clause in there that talks, you know, people call it the, you know, the conflict resolution clause, which basically says, if a crime is committed by uh, an American, a U.S. A, a colonist against our people, that we won't retaliate that we will simply petition their government to seek justice. And the same thing, if, if one of our people were to commit a crime against the colonists, that they would not seek justice, retribution against our people or that individual, they would petition our, our chiefs, our, our clan mothers, to, to ensure that, that the issue was, uh, was properly adjudicated. So that's, I mean, there's nothing in there that talks about superiority and, uh, and, or inferiority or, or any of that stuff. But our people today, and I see, I see that belt depicted all over the place. I mean, I live here on the Cattaraugus Territory of the United Nations. They've used it on their signage. They've used it on some of their buildings without ever really grasping what it means. Why? Because that's the level of erasure and indoctrination that has successfully been uh, perpetrated against our people. So today, as we fight the, the state and the federal government over everything from taxation to um, land use, environmental concerns, 
and yes, gaming and revenue and, and, and how we how we sustain ourselves. It lies on this thing. Look, there's another concept that has totally been displaced by indoctrination. And let me explain this one. I, I, and oftentimes I talk about my, my friend Peter Dorico. He wrote this great book called Federal Anti-Indian Law. Um, and it says The Legal Entrapment of Indigenous Peoples. It's a, it's a great book. Um, it is probably the best book that I've read in, in uh, almost 10 years. And what he talks about is how they created this notion of plenary powers. Now, in our culture, chiefs are not authorities. They're servants of the people. And yeah, look, and I know you, you in, in the United States, they've adopted that concept, in, in ter- at least in terms of um, the language, the vernacular. I mean, it's, it's nice to think that when somebody gets elected, they, that they are, they are not leaders, but they are servants of the people. Well, that was our concept. And so our, the, position, the, the people who had titles, whether they were a clan mother or a chief, they did not have authority. They had responsibility to the people. And how that balance of authority weighed out was very clear, both between the men and the women, from community to community, clan to clan, nation to nation. It was very clear that there would be no authoritarian rule. But in the United States, that's exactly how the United States has, has constructed its relationship with Native people. I mean, there's nothing in the Constitution that provides for this, this so-called authoritarian rule, this plenary powers, which means ultimate power that Congress should have over Native people. It's made up. In fact, it's made up through legal dicta in Supreme Court rulings, you know, 200 years ago. And it still maintains today. And our own people oftentimes rely on this notion that, that states can't do certain things to us, only Congress has that authority. And I reject that. And, and in fact, there's no legal premise, there's no rule of law, no constitutional basis, there's none of that stuff. And that's what Dorico's book does so, you know, so, so wonderfully in, uh, in, in laying, out, laying that out. But that's an example. Today, look, when, when there was a challenge to the Indian Child Welfare Act, it was the plenary powers doctrine that allowed the challenge to be put back because when, when a family or a state says, well, the Indian Child Welfare Act is an overreach by the federal government uh, over states' rights. Well, the argument is, no, Congress has that authority. When it comes to Native people, it's only Congress that has the ultimate authority on, to regulate the meets and bounds of tribal sovereignty. And they have that in a, in a superior position over states or over other branches of the, of the federal government. Of course, it's not true. It's just made up. These are examples of what we face. So, and, and this, these are parts of the conversation that I think are so important uh, for me to express to not only to Native people who happen to catch this show as a, as a Facebook live stream or a radio show or as a podcast, but to the general public so they understand. So I am very appreciative to have not only a weekly show on WBAI and WPFW, but to have this special broadcast on Indigenous Peoples Day. Again, not as a celebration, but as an opportunity for me to educate and for, for me to share some of the positions. And, and, uh, and it's not oftentimes the most widely held position on, that Native people have because we've become very compliant. We, you know, while resistance is still a significant part of who we are, complicity is as well. 
So again, I am grateful to be on air today on WPFW in Washington, D.C., live, and on WBAI in New York City uh, for, for this special broadcast. And I encourage you to support these two stations for, for uh, giving me this space, not only today, but in, perhaps even especially for today. Because I, I understand, look, this isn't my normal time slot. This is a, a Monday morning. This is a, a, a holiday morning, part of a three-day weekend. So I'm going to assume there are people who are catching this program who may, maybe have never heard this, this show before. I'm on in New York City on Thursdays at 3 p.m., and I'm on in Washington, D.C. on Fridays at 2 p.m. So you can catch this show on a weekly basis. And on the rare occasion that, that I get to do a special broadcast like this, I'm hoping that I, that I grab somebody on a, on, on a day that they, you know, they're, they're usually listening to the radio and may not have ever heard my show before. So I appreciate these, sta these stations in particular. And you know, there's a couple of, of, of affiliates that, that uh, broadcast the show as well. So, and I appreciate that. And of course, like I said, it, it's a Facebook live stream. It's a, it's a podcast. There's, there's almost no excuse not to, uh, not to be able to hear the show if you have a desire to. But because I am first and foremost a radio show, I ask that you support these, uh, these stations. And so let me, you know, just for a, a little, um, for a moment here, let me give you the, the pledge lines for, for WBAI and for WPFW. If you're listening in New York or anywhere and you want to support WBAI, I ask that you go to their pledge line, 212 209 2950. If you're listening in Washington, D.C., and, and WPFW is going through its, um, its fall pledge drive, so, uh, you know, so this is a great time for you to contact them. Uh, they have a toll-free number that's 1-800-222-9739, or you can go to 202-588-9739. Look, you can also go online. You can go to uh, WBAI.org, or you can go to their pledge uh, page, which is give2wbai.org. Or you can go to uh, WPFW's website, which is wpfwdc.org slash donate. Um, it's really important that you, when you do so, that you mention this, this program. Uh, they don't have the, the best metrics for determining uh, listenership on, on a show-by-show on show basis. Look, there's the Nielsen ratings, but they aren't really good for these kind of... They're good for commercial radio, but they're not great for this kind of thing. So... You know, one of the measure, measurements of, of listenership are the, the pledges that come in during, uh, during a show. I'm not saying, you know, using dollars and cents to evaluate my program is, uh, is either culturally appropriate or appropriate in general. But it is one of those metrics. So if you want to support um, a native voice on your station, then... Um, then I ask that you that you support the stations. Uh, and look, and there's also another way that you support the station. You know, because at, at the end of the day, listenership is the primary goal. Look, and I, and I can you know tax every one of you who listen to these stations you know uh, multiple times during the during a pledge drive and ask you to give. But if you're listening to these stations, you're probably already supporting these stations in some at some level. But if you're not, then you know, if, if you listen to these stations, you, I, you owe it to yourselves to share the information and the source of that information to your friends and your family. Spread the word. Let people know that, look, look there's a guy on the radio on WBAI and WPFW who's telling me stuff that I've never heard before. I think it's important. I think it's, it's, it's very important that you spread the word about 
these stations providing a space. Look, we we talk about um, land acknowledgments, and, and I got to tell you, I, I I made the statement that uh, Indigenous Peoples Day could be as meaningless as land acknowledgments, and I think land acknowledgments are um, are tools for solving or for soothing white guilt, because I you know as a Native person, if you're going to start a program of, of some sort and you're going to say well, I want to begin tonight's proceedings by doing a land acknowledgement about the, the indigenous people who once lived here. What does that do for us? I mean, if, if you're going to stand up and you're going to you know, talk about how we aren't there anymore, and that we've been driven from our lands, and, and do so in soft tones, soft hush tones, so it sounds like you're compassionate, but you're not giving us any space? And, and that's what I say about WPFW and WBA. They're giving me space. It may not be real estate. I may not be getting land back, but at least I'm getting airtime. And that's what is necessary. We need space back, land back. We need airtime. We need column inches. We need publishers who are willing to come to our, uh, you know, to our, our territories to, to seek out uh, writers. We, you know, there's a, a series that was streaming on Hulu called Reservation Dogs. It, it was a great, it was a great show. They just completed three seasons and they're done. Now, I offer constructive criticism about the show because I think there, there's some things that the show could have uh, captured that they didn't. But I'm glad the show existed. But we need more of that. We need more exposure. Somebody does need to know what, what coming of age means for a Native person in the world that we live in today. The fact that we struggle with some of the highest substance abuse and the highest suicide rates and the highest um, poverty rates in any place on the planet, not a hundred years ago, today. This, that story isn't told. You don't know this. Where do we fit in in the culture wars? Where do we fit in when, when somebody wants to refer to a black woman as a welfare queen? Well, what does that mean to Native people? Especially when you consider that most people that are on welfare are white. But where do we fit into that conversation? Where, how do people you know, uh, um, think about dollars that come to Native people through the Interior Department? Are they looking at it as charity, as, as just a waste of money being thrown at, 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 you know, at a people who don't matter? Or are you looking at it as an obligation that the federal government has? Because this was the commitment that they made as lands were ceded. Look, we're not getting charity. The fact that, that health care or, you know, or, or, or anything else that comes our way as far as social services is characterized as social services is, is a crime all by itself. We gave up millions and millions of, our, of uh, acres of our homelands in exchange for a promise that we would not starve or be starved, that we would not be, we would not perish because of, you know, failure for health care. But that has, that, that promise has not been fulfilled. So you need to understand that, that our territories, our communities are not only different from each native territory to native territory, but they're different from yours. We don't, we don't, we don't collect taxes on our land. We don't do we don't do the same things that you do. We don't we don't finance our 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 public finance doesn't just come from from taxation or you know, and and many people think well yeah it's because you're just on the you know the, the government's teat for all that. Well, that's not true either. And 
if it were true and we were adequately being uh, being funded for the incredible amounts that we sacrificed, we wouldn't be living in poverty. And native people live in the most extreme at the most extreme levels of poverty, more so than anybody else. And I want to include native Hawaiians in this conversation. Because Hawaiian, the Ganaka Maoli have never been adequately um, compensated for, for their losses, for the coup, for the illegal occupation of their land. And what we saw with these devastating fires uh, um, in Lahaina and, and Maui was, I mean, it, it, it almost fits in with the devastation the Hawaiian people have experienced at the hands. I'm, look, I'm not saying somebody specifically lit those fires, but they're, they're, they are the result of not just climate change, but the devastating um, alteration to their ecosystems. That's why these things happen. You, you've got you know, both the military and tourism that dominate Hawaii. While the, while the native Hawaiians live, many of them homeless, Many of them in you know in the most disturbing with the most disturbing levels of poverty, and the rest of the world just looked at Hawaii as as paradise. Well, it's not paradise for the people who you deprived of their paradise. So, I mean, and you know today, and and I heard it mentioned on Democracy Now. You know, one of the people talked about settler colonialism in in, in Palestine. What we see happening to people there, and look, you don't hear a whole lot of Native people weighing in the, on, on this, but I'm going to tell you, what the Palestinians are experiencing is exactly what Native people are still experiencing here. So those people who can stand on either side, I mean, I know in New York City, my, my buddy Michael G. Haskins was, was down there during some protests, uh, uh, and there were the Palestinian side, and there was the uh, Israeli side, and, and they're shouting at each other, and they're waving their flags and everything else. But I got to tell you, when, when I look at what the Palestinians have experienced at the hands of Israel, it's, it, it's, a, it's a mirror of what Native people have experienced and, and still experience here in the, in, in the United States and on the Canadian side and in many places of the world. I mean, to, to, to talk about Indigenous Peoples Day today, while these travesties still continue, I got to tell you, it, it, that's why I, I won't celebrate this day. I mean, I, I can't celebrate a day that, frankly, is still being shared with, with one of the most tyrannical people in, in the history of the world, and, you know, a, a guy who is, is given all of this praise and, uh, you know, and attributed to, to these, this, this great accomplishment, for a guy who was lost, a guy who didn't know where he was. I mean, let's be clear. Christopher Columbus still believed in his dying day that he had reached the easternmost islands of the East Indies. He didn't know that he had reached a series of, 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 of lands and, and continents that he simply wasn't aware of. Now, I'm not saying that nobody was aware of it, because I think that there were probably Africans that have made it across uh, the Atlantic. I think there were probably Polynesians and, uh, and folks from the South Pacific who had made it across. Um, and I think there are, are people who, who navigated coastlines, uh, you know, not so much, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the whole land bridge thing and the Bering Strait thing, but, 
But clearly, there are people who have, that had frequented our lands. And, you know, and I, I reject the notion of a single point origin theory of how, na- how people came to be on this continent before Columbus. But people did come here before Columbus. And, and probably from many different places. And the fact that, that he believed that he had reached the Indonesia in, to his dying day, how do you say that guy discovered something if he didn't even know where he was? And, of course, the crimes that he committed against Native people, and not just he, but the, the, the Spanish that he represented, and he did. He didn't represent Italian, so you can stop that, stop that nonsense. But he did represent the Spanish, the Catholic Church, and, and all of that. And that has been one of the worst atrocities that the world has ever seen. I mean, the idea that a genocide could start 500 years ago and continue to this day, and it does continue to this day. We are still fighting for our autonomy. And when I hear people even take this day and suggest that this day symbolizes our inclusion, no. No, I, I reject that premise. And if, in fact, if that's what you're calling this day, then I, I, then I don't want to be a part of it. But if you're going to say we're going to uh, you know, acknowledge a day for Native people to speak out, and, you know, and not just on, on my regular show, but give me a special opportunity to speak out about the atrocities that Indigenous people face all over the world, yeah, I'll, I'll take that one up. And I'll acknowledge an Indigenous People's Day for that purpose, but not to celebrate. Look, we've accomplished some things. I personally have accomplished some things. I, I, I cannot be prouder of the fact that I played a, a, a primary role in getting a statewide ban on the use of Native mascots for schools in New York State. But just the fact that, I, that there's still four schools fighting it in, in such a, you know, you know almost a, gr- a grotesque way. The idea that they'll spend tax dollars that, you know, that come to them for their kids and they're going to spend it on, on this fight. And especially since most of this stuff is not about the kids. It's about the alumni, people who've been out of school for 30, 40, 50 years. We still have these fights. And it doesn't matter. Our fights with New York State or the federal government transcend your political parties. It's a Democrat who's the governor of, uh, of New York State who extorted half a billion dollars out of the Senecas for, for revenue sharing. I don't even know how you use the word sharing when you're extorting the money out of them. You're forcing them to pay. Extorted half a billion dollars, then turned around and gave it to a billionaire, uh, a billionaire from, from gas and oil, who made his money from gas and oil, who happened to buy the Buffalo Bills and, you know, the, the Buffalo Sabres and, and, and even the, the Buffalo Bandits, the, the lacrosse franchise, buys all the sports teams up, is praised widely in Western New York, and Kathy Hochul takes that half a billion dollars she extorted out of the Senecas and gives over 400 million of it to this billionaire. So what? For what? Because he's threatening to take the, the Buffalo Bills out of Western New York? Are you kidding me? So you got to pay a billionaire almost a half a billion dollars to keep them here? And actually, by the time you, you factor in the other state resources that you're going to put towards this, it does come to close to a billion, uh, a billion dollars. Over $800 million. The, the governor of the state of New York 
The New York Giants don't play in New York. The New York Jets don't play in New York. Why? Because, because New York rejected the idea of building them a stadium for them. It's kind of a practice that doesn't exist anymore. Why? Because there's huge corporate sponsorship. These teams, the Pagulas who bought the, the Buffalo Bills, have seen the, the value of that team increase dramatically. I mean, they've made over a billion dollars in terms of the asset just out of the value of the, of the team itself. <clears throat> it's, it's an absurd thing. But these are the, the challenges that we have today. I'm not talking about the atrocities that were committed in the past. I can, and I have, and I will. But we're still experiencing this stuff today. I've got my friends in Long Island who are still being arrested for harvesting some eel from the, uh, from the, the rivers there. Today, not, not 100 years ago, today. We have, we have the, the rich in, uh, of the Hamptons Hamptons complaining because the Shinnecock put a put a sign up, put a you know a monument up to to who they are, and an electronic billboard, if you will, fighting them over it. <clears throat> These are the challenges we still have today. We have environmental concerns, not just that impact our lands and our waters, but everybody's. And we have this challenge every single day. We see it every single day. We have. We, we have reckoning of the past that has not even begun. I mean, they, they haven't even begun to reckon with the, the, the genocide that residential schools all by themselves represent. And, and let me be clear. <clears throat> genocide is defined in the international community as generally creating the conditions to, to eliminate a people. It's, it's, it's ethnic cleansing. But they cite Five specific acts killing people with the intent to destroy them. Causing physical, mental, emotional harm, including sexual abuse, against the people with the intent to destroy them. In fact, creating conditions, which could be everything from forced indoctrination to, you know, to, to any number of things that might not fit the category of, you know, of physical abuse or mental abuse. That creating any, any conditions that would force people to cease to exist. The other two are um, depriving us of, of our birth, our ability to, to reproduce. Native girls in particular, they were, they were, they went under the knife, not only at these schools, but through so-called Indian health services. There were women who were rendered void, who were no longer able to reproduce because of these schools. They went under the knife to have their tubes tied or hysterectomies or, or whatever. Sterilization programs existed for Native people as a part of these schools. And of course, the, the fifth act is taking the, the, the taking of children, which is exactly what this was all about. Now, I got to tell you, those five definitions of genocide did not get constructed or put together or defined because of us. It was, it was atrocities that were happening in Europe that caused the invention of that word genocide. And prior to that, they used to call it denationalization, the idea of stripping away somebody's national character and imposing a national character upon them of another nation. But that wasn't strong enough. 
So the word genocide was developed. It was coined and, and became a part of the international vernacular for the crimes committed against uh, uh, not just indigenous people, but the crimes committed against a people by a dominant, uh, by a, a more dominant or physically military, militaristically dominant culture. But when you look at the definitions of genocide, it reads like the playbook for, for residential schools. And the United States hasn't begun. There were three times as many, three times more residential schools, Indian boarding schools, on the, on the U.S. side than on the Canadian side. And there's been thousands of bodies that have been located through the use of ground-penetrating radar at or about these, these schools on the Canadian side. Had, hadn't even begun on the U.S. side. Hasn't, hasn't even started. And I got to tell you, for all the praise and all the hype that went along with, um, with Interior Secretary being named, a, a Native woman being named as Interior Secretary, Deb Hallam. Everybody said, oh yeah, look, look what Joe Biden's done for Native people. Look, putting a Native person in that position does nothing for us. It's window dressing. She works for you now. She doesn't work for us. And frankly, there hasn't been any dramatic change because a Native person is sitting in that spot. She didn't step up as the Senecas were fighting New York State over having half of their revenue taken from their gaming uh, operations. She never stepped up. She suggested, oh, maybe there should be a rule change in the future. In the future? The Senecas are in negotiation today for a new compact with New York State, dictated to them by federal law under the plenary powers doctrine. Some rule change in the future isn't going to solve this problem for the Senecas today. You've... you've Started some wheels in motion about reckoning with residential schools, but, but no real work has been done. And on the Canadian side, when they put those, those action items together as a part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, among them was to identify how many children died at these schools. Canada rejected that. No, no, we're not going to do that. It's the nations, it's the Native people themselves that have had to hire engineers to come in and do this ground-penetrating radar. They knew they had children buried in those spots. They knew there were mass graves and unmarked graves. And they were denied church records. And you know what? Let's be honest. The churches wrote down everything. Pretty much. I don't think they accounted for the pregnancies and the abortions and the, and the, and the murders that took place. But look, if they could attribute, uh, attribute you know, deaths to tuberculosis or the Spanish flu or, any, or anything else, you know, they had no problem documenting it. Those records aren't, aren't being um, made available to Native people. And look, children died because of abuse. And that abuse included murder, rape, um, malnutrition, uh, de being deprived of proper health care, not just for getting sick, but for uh, unsafe work conditions. Sometimes even the most minor of injuries that, that a child uh, you know, in, in, you know, incurred because of the labor that was forced upon them would not be treated and could be could turn deadly. There's any number of things that cause the death and the, and the harm. Look, I think trying to talk about residential schools as only uh, those children who died, every one of them died a little. The policy was kill the Indian, save the man. The whole goal was to kill a part of our people as children in these schools. Kill the Indian, save the man. That was the policy. And killed they did. 
And they killed a piece of every person that went into those schools. Every single one of those, those children experienced some level of loss. Whether it was their language, whether it was their hair, whether it was anything that they could cling to as a part of their identity. And of course the irony is that while Native children were, were having their identity beaten out of them, white kids could play Indian as a part of school because that was the mascot their school had chosen. Their, their, their parents had chosen to have a Native mascot for their school so they could smear their mom's makeup on their face for war paint. War paint. They could literally play Indian and, and appropriate that identity as a part of their school, as a part of their educational process, while Native children were having it beaten out of them. You know, that mere fact alone should shame anybody into saying, yeah, it's not appropriate. Look, we know blackface isn't acceptable. Why is redface? And, and I say this all the time, and, and it's a simple analogy. How would you do this with anybody else other than Native people? How would you honor Black people? Because that, that's the claim, right? Oh, oh, we only adopted these Native mascots to honor Native people. Did you really? Did you consult with us? <laughs> so you're calling yourselves Indians or Redskins or Savages or Warriors or Raiders as an honor to us? Well, how would you honor Black people? What would your logo be? What would your nickname be for your team? And how appropriate would it be for an entire student body of non-black kids now identifying themselves as black simply because of the school mascot? Because that's what happens with native, with native mascots. That's what happens with these alumni 30 years out of school, 40 years out of school, 50 years out of school. Now, they're, they're claiming, they are claiming, damn it, I'm an Indian. Because I went to school in Cambridge Central High School in upstate New York. Really? Really? This is what we face today. And there isn't an adequate reckoning for the crime of genocide. And look, don't stick the word cultural in front of it. And, and, and on the Canadian side, when they first did the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Murray Sinclair, a Native person, called the residential schools cultural genocide. No, it's not. Don't... Look... Don't use expressions like paper genocide, cultural genocide, you know, I don't, I don't know what other kind of words you can put in front of it. The word genocide is, is the word genocide. That's what it is. I recently, I know in the Canadian Parliament, they did pass it through um, some sort of acknowledgement that the residential schools was genocide, not cultural genocide, but genocide. And it was really kind of done through a voice um, vote or a lack of a voice vote. Nobody opposed it. It took three tries for it to go through, but it, it finally did. But, I mean, again, it's, it's only lip service if nothing is done to change it. And if today we accept the imposition of U.S. citizenship, if we accept the plenary powers doctrine, if we accept that the somehow the United States has this trust responsibility to us that they owe us and, and, and that's what's going to take care of. If we, if we accept any of that, what we're accepting is that their genocide was effective and that it worked. 
That's why I say when it comes to the residential schools, it's not enough to talk about truth and reconciliation. We need restoration. We need lands restored. We need space returned. We need our autonomy acknowledged, our distinction acknowledged. No, I, I, look, I understand what diversity, equity, inclusion is supposed to do. But I'm not trying to become a part of the American mosaic, the U.S., the United States mosaic. I still want distinction and autonomy. I'm John Cain, and this is Resistance Radio. This is a special Resistance Radio program for Indigenous Peoples Day. I want to thank WBAI and WPFW for giving me this space to do this show. I want to encourage those of you who listen to these, uh, to these stations to support these stations. And if look, if, you, if you're listening to this program today, or if you catch my shows on Thursday in, in New York and Fridays on, in Washington, I hope that you support the stations. But more importantly, I hope you spread the word. Yes, we're oftentimes in dire needs of, uh, need of funding uh, for these stations. But what we need primarily is more listenership. We need to expand. Look, we're in two major markets, Washington and New York City. It's absurd to me that, uh, that listenership could, be, could wane in, in, such, in such a big way. But for those who do listen to the station, I've got to ask you, because look, we apparently don't have the marketing budget to promote who, uh, listenership and to, and to grab more listenership. But you can. In the world that we live in today, with social media and electronic media and all this other stuff, you have the ability to spread the word. Look, this program is on Facebook. It's Facebook live streaming right now. I put, it, I, I put YouTube videos up. And look, they may be for the show, but they promote the station. Invite me to come speak at your events. If you're an alumni to a, to a university, an HBCU or whatever, invite me to come speak at your university. Invite me to become a part of developing a program that will, will educate. 1619 Project is great, but you know, there were some things that took place before 1619 that really need to be discussed. And there were some things that Native people played, a role that we played in everything from the Underground Railroad to, you know, you know, to, you know the, the freeing of slaves. So we can't just have this tunnel vision. We have to do more. So I ask that you spread the word. If you're listening to this program today on Indigenous Peoples Day, or if you catch Resistance Radio on Thursday in New York and, uh, and Friday on, in, in Washington, I ask that you spread the word. Tell people that this show exists. Encourage people to listen. And, and, and any other programs that you listen to on, on these, these stations. And... That's the way we'll rebuild these stations and we'll, we'll, we'll recover from what has been, uh, you know, a, a, a tough time. We need you. We are listener-supported radio. And we not only need you, you, the listener, to support the stations, but we need you, the listener, to expand. So I want to thank you. I'm not done yet here yet, so this is a closing. I just, I mean, we're at the top of the hour. I wanted to acknowledge, who, you know, who we are and what we're doing here. It is. It's, um, it's Indigenous Peoples Day. As I said earlier, it's not a day of celebration as much as it should be a day of education. And it, and it should be every day. Look, I'm, I, I get to be on the radio once a week. And, and, and I do more than that. I do get out there. But we need more conversations. 
And I'm not saying that we need more representation. Look, uh, there was a um, provincial premier in Manitoba just named this week, Wab Canoe. He's a he's a provincial premier. I don't know that that helps us. You know, I, I, I see it all the time. When, when Native people become a part of their political system, they just become a part of their political system. Deb Hallen, look, she's, you know, she can, she, she's got a nice resume now. She's successful. She transitioned from, do, from being involved in Native issues to now sitting, you know, at the right hand of, uh, of Joe Biden. She works for him now. She serves at his pleasure, not ours. And every time I see our own people get excited when one of ours makes it, has success in their system, they don't acknowledge that we just lost somebody. And we can, we can you know, argue about whether it was somebody of value to us or not. We need our leadership. You want to you want to highlight point out uh, you know somebody who's who's successful in in uh, from a native territory? Don't tell me that they're successful in their system. Look, exterminate all the brutes. A great series that was done. Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. She was a part of uh, you know working with Raul Peck to to do that series. It was great. But in the, in that one section that I had a problem with in that series, and if you get a chance to look it up, it's called Exterminate All the Brutes. There was he talked about our success. And every person that he highlighted was judged to be successful by their standards. They were successful because white people said they were successful, not because we did. Look, I am not an elected native leader. I'm a voice. And I, and I got to tell you, I'm probably not, again, I'm not one that espouses the, the dominant narrative from, from native territories. Most of my people have experienced some level of indoctrination and assimilation. And look, we all have. We all have. But some of us have, have been experienced enough of it that they no longer have a clear view of who they are. You know, they're oftentimes, look, we use all kinds of words to describe ourselves. You know, many Native people accept U.S. citizenship. Many call themselves enrolled members of a federally recognized tribe. To me, that's an insult. There's no word in enrolled member of a federally recognized tribe. None of those words are ours. None of them. And none of them accurately represent who we are. I'm not an enrolled member. I'm Gunyagahaga, which you know is Mohawk. I don't need to say I'm a member or a citizen of the Mohawk nation. I don't need to use the word nation at the end of it. I don't need any of that extra uh, that extra wordage because it diminishes my identity. When I, when I use words like that, when I say that I'm a member of a federally recognized band, a tribe, band, or nation of Indians, really? We have a word for who we are. It's umwe. That's our word to describe who we are. It means original or real human being. Because... We don't believe you can be a, a real human being if you don't have a generational tie to the land that you're on. I'm sorry. This is how we distinguish ourselves from, from, from white folks. And, and even black folks, even though they're dragged here. And I'm not talking about brown folks who, who are, are now being characterized as immigrants. 
when at, at worst, or, or I don't even want to say worst, but they may be migrants because we've had these migratory, migratory patterns that have existed on this continent for thousands of years, but now they're being cast as immigrants, refugees. And where are they refugees from? They're refugees from a system of corruption that was created by colonialism. The same system of colonialism that's playing out in Palestine today. The same systems of colonialism that are playing out in some of the most violent areas of Africa today. The same systems of colonialism that are playing out in South America, North America. Every day, every day. The same system of colonialism that is responsible for climate change, for social injustice, political strife, all of it. It's all comes down to the to you know to the same thing. It's not just capitalism, it's colonialism, it's imperialism. So that's what I believe my show on Thursday and Friday is for, but that's what the opportunity is today. To have a new time slot, if only for today, an extended show, if only for today, to reach out to people who may, maybe never heard this kind of stuff before. We're, look, we're going to take some calls um, in this hour. A couple of things I want to do. Um, I, I, I'm going to be on um, Living for the City at 11.30 on Wednesday with Michael G. Haskins and, and, uh, and a lot of you. I'm going to be joining them. And we're going to be talking about the new film that, uh, that's coming out this month called uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. Now, I had the author of this book, and, I'm, and I'm, for those of you who are seeing me on Facebook Live, I'm holding up a copy of uh, the book by David Grant, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. I'm going to be joining Michael G. Um, for a discussion on the film that's coming out. Because the film isn't the book. The book is a... is investigative journalism it, it is a, it's it's an investigation i mean it that's what it is it's not, it's not a novel it's not a story we can say it tells a story but the film is a dramatization it's based on the book and until we see the film we're not going to know how loosely it was based but what i will say in listening to interviews from scorsese and dicaprio and to a lesser extent de niro and seeing the trailers they're trying to make you, the viewer, sympathize with the murderers and somehow show how conflicted they were. I literally heard Scorsese in, a, in an interview say that what drew him to the story was how love and friendship coexisted or existed with, the, with murder and theft. And I say... Oh, hell no. That wasn't love. That wasn't friendship. The story of the Osage is a story of murder. And it was murder conducted by people who married in to these people to take their oil money. There was no love or friendship. It was all premeditation towards murder and theft. So, I know... Leonardo DiCaprio was going to play the, the um, FBI agent originally and decided that he would rather play a more complex character, a character that he could, you know, come and demonstrate his, his, his acting ability. And so he plays this 
Ernest Burkhart, who who attempts to murder, who murder is involved with murdering other Osage people, primarily women, but is also trying to kill his own wife for for the oil revenue. And he decides to play that character because he thinks that he can, you know, he can show the torment and the and the and the conflict that the you know that the the guy went through. Well, what about the torment of the Osage? So look, I'm going to talk. To, uh, with Michael G. about this book on Wednesday and about the film. But I'm going to tell you, I hope people do see the film so they understand some parts of the story. But if you really want to know the story, you need to read the book. The book does not make you sympathize with the murderers. And it, and it makes it very clear that the murders, the murderers were vast. It wasn't just a few individuals. So anyway, join me on um, Wednesday morning at 1130 for Living for the City uh, on WBAI. And you can listen to it, uh, you know, stream it online. But that's the, that's the show that I'm doing with Michael G. Haskins on, on Wednesday. Um, so anyway, I wanted to promote that. I also have to say that if you're looking for a film, um, because it's in Indigenous People's Day, and... And the reason it's Indigenous Peoples Day today is because it has been celebrated as Columbus Day for, for far too long. Um, I got to recommend um, a film called Even the Rain. And, I, and I'm not saying it's a problem, but the only thing, the catch here is that it's, it's a Spanish language film. So you have to read subtitles. But it is a great film about, the film is about making a film. It's not a documentary, it's a dramatization, but it's a film about making a film about Columbus. The true story of Columbus. The, the most heinous and, and the most vicious atrocities committed by Columbus and his men. But it's filmed in Bolivia because, it, again, according to the storyline, it was cheaper to do it there. It wasn't filmed in the Caribbean. And the backdrop, in the backdrop is you have indigenous people there who are struggling with racism today. So it's layered in, in the fact that they demonstrate the racism, uh, the clear racism, uh, as a part of what Columbus did, but then the film can't help but demonstrate the racism that exists today in a battle over water and, and government control and, and that kind of stuff. So uh, uh, a great film. Uh, you look, you can find it on Netflix. It's on any of some of the streaming services. I happen to have a copy of the video. I've screened the film in New York a couple of times, and I'd, lo I'd love to screen it again. And one of the things that I never really had, I would have I loved to have screened the film with a uh, Spanish speaker. So when we had conversations after the film, we could have uh, delved into whatever we might miss by only reading subtitles. But uh, uh, again, uh, a great um, a, a great film. If you're looking for a film associated with this with this day, that's uh, that's as good as they get, as far as I'm concerned. A, a really great film. Um, all right. So again, let me identify myself. I'm John Kane. This is Resistance Radio, a special um, broadcast for. Uh, for Indigenous Peoples Day, I would like to, um, you know, I'd like to open up the phone lines. And a part of that is, um, is that I want to, I'd like to, I'd love to hear some from some people in Washington. And if you're listening on, if you're watching on Facebook Live or whatever else, I would love it if you could, um, uh, if you could phone in, you know, wherever you're listening, whether it's Washington, whether it's, you know, New York or, or, or if you're streaming the show, from those stations and the stations websites, <clears throat> any places. I'd love to hear you from different people. And look, 
you don't necessarily have to call in to agree with me. If you've got a different view on the mascot issue or any any of these other issues, then um, let's hear it. I'm, I, I'll have the conversation. I'm not afraid to engage in somebody who doesn't agree with some of the stuff that I talk about here. So, uh, so please do. Look, we're gonna we're gonna move to phone calls, but uh, let me first. Um, um, I've talked about the the uh, residential schools, and and as many of you know, I I do favor Murray Porter songs. Uh, I uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna play a song that uh, that probably really captures the the residential school in a way that it's you know goes goes beyond just talking about it so uh here is is sorry enough by murray porter now you say you're sorry It's not what you say It's what you do Tell us you'll do better But it's hard to believe in you The day is finally come Told the world that you were wrong. Far too many have passed on now. When it's sorry, took away our children. continue we're going to do the uh, uh the, the call in now so the the phone number to call in is 212-209-2877 i'm doing this show uh, just so you know from the cataraugus territory of the seneca nation i'm not uh, i'm not in new york or washington dc 
my voice is, but uh, let, let's go to the, the callers. Again, 212-209-2877. I do want to acknowledge that I've got Catherine Davis working with me. Um, she's going to be uh, taking the calls, and, uh, and she'll let me know. I'll be asking her uh, on mic <laughs> uh, what we got for callers. I know we have at least a caller lined up, so let's go right to a call if we could. Caller, first tell me, um, what's, your, what's your name and where are you calling from? Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you great. You sound good. Wonderful. Uh, I'm calling from Queens. My name is Elder, and I have a question. Good show. Um, I believe you mentioned George Washington was the first president uh, of this country. I've heard that it was uh, John Hanson, the first president, a man of color. Can you speak to that if you have knowledge? And thank you. No, and I think I think I've heard the same thing, and and I don't know what um, what historical evidence there is that it, that attributes that, and you know, it, it would be obviously it, knowing where the where the, the colonies were at that time, um, it doesn't sound like it, it rings particularly true. I don't know I don't know what the basis of that is. It could be just kind of some semantics or something like that. I I don't know exactly, but. Uh, uh, so when I when I mentioned George Washington, he is obviously clearly acknowledged as the, the United States first uh, first president. Um, obviously, this individual would have had a lot more uh, history associated with who he was if uh, if he in fact was ever the, the U.S. president. So I don't I don't really know what to say about that. But uh, but I will say, you know, when we talk about the founding fathers of the United States. Uh, most of their their policies were geared towards the eradication of native people. You know, obviously they were all very much in favor of slavery and they were very much in favor of genocide. And their policies suggested so. Even the language of the Declaration of Independence not only refers to native people as merciless Indian savages, but one of their complaints for, and one of the reasons for declaring independence was the fact that King George was not allowing them to bring in more Europeans and expand their land holdings because King George was was trying to um, limit their expansion, uh, he had actually issued the Royal Proclamation of 1763 that that acknowledged native lands and native ownership of lands. And and to the extent that some native people were already pushed from their lands, he was acknowledging their places within this newly defined border for the colonies. And uh, and this really angered the colonists because they, they saw, knew the land for what it was. It was valuable and it was, uh, it was something that they could cash in on. So I'll acknowledge that. So uh, I, thank Elder, I thank you, Elder, for calling. Um, I'll try to find out a little bit more about that kind of thing. I, I've heard that before, but I, I've never really been able to fully substantiate it. So um, Thank you. Uh, Catherine, have we got another caller lined up? If we do, why don't, caller, why don't you identify yourself and let me know where you're calling from? Oh, hi, John. I'm I'm John also, and I'm up in the Bronx. Hey, John. Thanks for calling. J- um, John, your show is great. It is the perfect antidote for the absolute garbage that the media is filled with on this particular day between this phony nitwit Columbus stuff and then what Israel is doing in the Middle East. Thank you for being on. I, I'm about you know, to turn the television off. Because it's just so disgusting, and we're going to have a nice full day of it. But uh, you're making it a lot nicer, and I enjoy your message. And you speak for people who have 
been totally ignored by this country and keep doing it. And I don't like, and I like that you tell it like it is. You don't have to uh, soften your message to somebody like me because it's great. Well, I want to thank you for that. And, you know, look, I also know that there's a lot of Native people who are, um, you know, considered these iconic voices in, in Indian country who would not necessarily concur with, with some of my messaging. And, and part of it is that they are pandering for, you know, uh, for, you know, for the dominant culture around them. And, and, and I, and, and I find that very difficult. Look, I don't think I've got to cast anybody as my enemy. And, and look, to the extent that I am resisting, you know, the powers of the state or the powers of the federal government, it is not so much that I, that I'm, I'm hating on, white people or non-native people. You know, some, some of those people do present themselves and we see it in the mascot debate. We see that and we see, you know, how, how some people just, you know, they just can't get past this idea that, that we are still, that we still exist and that we should have some say over our, over our identities. And, and, you know, I find it sometimes, sometimes almost incredible. And, you know, one of the things, you know, sometimes people ask me, why do you engage with people like this? I mean, because I've done it. I've done it on social media. I've done it through emails. Um, I, not so much on the phone. Uh, and, and again, I, I know the people who listen to, to these stations are not necessarily going to be the most overtly racist folks. <laughs> so, but, but I do engage. And part of the thing is, and, and when I do it in social, on social media, I do it because I know that I may not change the view of the person that I'm engaging. But people are witnessing this stuff. And as I fully engage with these people, and I've done it at board meetings, at, at school board meetings and that kind of stuff, their racism is going to present themselves, present itself. They, they almost can't help themselves. The more you engage with somebody on some of these issues like the mascot issue or what Native people have experienced or their, their opposition to critical race theory or wokeism or whatever else, the more you can, it's, it's real easy to fare out of them um, their, their underlying racism. And so, and, oh, and, yeah. and I'm always trying to make sure that people can dist distinguish that and they, that they're not getting it from me, but they're getting it from the very people that I'm engaging with. Yeah, no, these, I, I, what is with these people that they don't have any empathy and they just, you know, they, they hear something and uh, they're so shaken by their, they're just out of it. They don't leave the house. What they don't seem to read a book. They don't seem to have any empathy for anybody. I don't get it. Well, lots of Fox News, maybe. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> part of you know part of the issue it really comes down to uh, privilege, and more often than not, it's it's white privilege. Or it's or it's, uh, look, even I got to tell you, even when this idea that white supremacy was not being advocated for as much, when when the the shift came and the new euphemism was. American exceptionalism. To me, that's still just as problematic. We can't, you know, we can't continue to perpetuate that everything U.S., everything American is good, and everything against it is evil. That's just that's just a you know a wrong. I mean, that's just categorically wrong. And you know, and if if we continue to to do that, what we're denying are the wrongs that the United States has committed and and continues to commit. And you know, and look. The world is paying a price for that. So I, I appreciate what you're, I appreciate your call. I appreciate what, you, what you said. You want, yeah. Well, I love your show and I, I'm, I really enjoy hearing it. And I hope that uh, you're on BAI regularly and uh, keep up the great work.
Well, I appreciate that. And WPFW. I, I've got to acknowledge, I've, I've only been on WPFW for, I think, for a year or so. A couple of... Oh, yeah. And, and you know what, John? Uh, people should support these stations because the censorship on YouTube and these other platforms is just ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous and, and uh, has to be broken down. I got, I, I got to share one little story with you before, before I completely let you go. But, uh, you know, in the mascot debate, I had somebody from my old hometown, my old high school, um, who uh, I guess somebody told me he was kind of the thuggish guy. He's a tattoo artist. And I'm not saying all tattoo artists are thugs or anything. But, but um, he, he offered a suggestion on Facebook that, um, that it was time, you know, that somebody should give him permission to scalp me. And, and it's funny because... Um, somebody reported it to Facebook and, and the response that they got back was that they didn't feel that the comment violated their community standards. <laughs> so yeah, so that's, when you talk about censorship, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily translate. I mean, there are some things that I think, I think anybody who's suggesting that they should lynch a black man or, or scalp a native person, it probably is, uh, it should have violated the community standards. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, but that's just the, the, the hypocrisy, and that's why BAI needs to be supported. Yeah. All right, hey, uh, let me remind people, we, um, we're at the bottom of the hour. We've got about a half hour left. I'm going to do more calls. Um, I do want to remind people that we are, uh, we are broadcasting live on WPFW in Washington, D.C., and on WBAI in New York City. We are doing calls right now, and the call-in number is 212-209-2877. Look, if you've never heard the show before, um, and you're catching it now because of the odd uh, time slot that we're in um, or, or the, uh, the day we're not normally on, then, then I'd love to hear from you. If you're, if you're catching us on Facebook live stream, um, you too. By all means, give me a, give me a call, 212-209-2877. Uh, Catherine, uh, do we got another caller lined up? Yeah, four more callers. All right. Caller, you're up next. What's your name and where are you calling from? Yeah, hi, John. Uh, Brandon here on Long Island. Met you at Adelphi. Uh, on Indigenous Peoples Day, wanted to talk about how our government still leans on Native peoples by uh, enforcing uh, exploit exploitation of uh, natural resources. Uh, Ward Churchill, you know the name, mm -hmm. uh, in his book, uh, 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 what is it, uh, Perversion of Truths, said that President Nixon had made uh, the Dakotas a national sacrifice area for uranium and other minerals. And today, or the next few days, there'll be Native peoples coming to the U.N. to talk about uh, the issue. But they are only given two minutes each to make their case uh, at the U.N. So here we are uh, trying to get the message out. I appreciate your work. I wonder if you could talk about uh, the you know unholy uh, leaning on uh, Native peoples' lands for you know supposedly saving uh, you know us energy prices and the like. Well, I mean the the entire uh, fight at Standing Rock over the Dakota Access Pipeline was was somewhat based on the fact that they chose a route for that pipeline that would uh, stay away from white folks. <laughs> that would, that would, if there was a sacrifice zone, it would be the Lakota people. And there was no question about that. It, it was clear in their documentation. It was also clear in the way that they went through their environmental uh, um, uh, reviews. They, they did it section by section. So they never had to say what the total environmental impact, negative environmental impact would have been. But that entire fight over the Dakota Access Pipeline 
uh, you know, begins with them routing that pipeline specifically to avoid any non-native populations and to to place only the native territories and those immediately impacted. And of course, look, if that if a pipeline were to were to rupture, that water doesn't just get contaminated around native people. It goes downstream and it, and it, and it impacts a much larger population. But the most immediate impact would have been, you know, would have been native territories. And look, we've seen there there are still to this day open um, uranium mines, open pit uranium mines throughout native territories. Uh, there was a lot of uranium that was pulled out of. I mean, in fact, there was a there was a settlement that had to be done with the Navajo because the United States was uh, was shortchanging them. They they were withholding and and and, and screwing them on payments. For, for uranium that was taken from their territories. And to this day, there are, there are gas wells emitting you know, methane and you know, CO2 into the atmosphere that's never been properly uh, plugged on native territories. There are these uranium mines. There are cancer cl clusters that show up um, in, in, in all kinds of, of territories. There's even been dumping of, uh, you know, of um, Met, or, uh, military wastes in in places, uh, you know, um, Apache territory and, and the like. So there's there's no question that native territories have been used for sacrifice zones um, and the greater, uh, you know, to, to, to withstand the greatest impact if, if and when the, uh, environmental disasters beyond the, the mining itself, um, you know, there, I live here on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation, uh, a few miles uh, east of here, there was the West Valley demonstration site, which was supposed to be a site that was supposed to refurbish um, spent fuel rods um, because the the big push was going to be nuclear power, and, and there was all kinds of promises that they were going to take these military, you know, um, grade uh, uranium fuel rods, and they were going to refurbish them for uh, for electric power, and it, what it turned into was not it, it didn't the, the 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 money didn't really work out so it ended up being a site where they stored the stuff and of course it leached through and it uh and they have these radiation blooms as they call it the river that goes through the land that i live on and i live on the cataraugus territory of the seneca nation it's the cataraugus creek that goes through here there has been pretty some some evidence that um that there are levels of uh you know, of radiation uh, in in that river as a result of these blooms, and, and I like the way they say that. Say it's like it's like it's beautiful. These these uh, these blooms of, of radiation that came from the West Valley demonstration site. So uh, yeah, I pre I appreciate the call. You know, and this is just an example of of what native peoples experience. So was, we get limited on what we can do on our own lands, but they managed to be able to do these kinds of things on our lands. That that's you know. You know, that are, are just incredible. So, uh, Brandon, I, I appreciate the call. Uh, if we got another caller, caller, you can come through at this point. Uh, let me know what your name is and where you're calling from. Hello? Yeah, there you are. Yeah. There you are. Go ahead. Yeah, my name is Samuel Jackson. And you were speaking about the first president. John Hanson was a Confederation president. George Washington was an intercontinent president. And you speak about who was here first, the Africans was here first before George Washington or anyone else was here first. And we speak about Native Americans. Well, when you speak the word Native Americans, what do you mean by that? 
where did they come from? Since the Africans was here on this continent before anybody else. Now I listen to what you have to say. Well, I never say Native American. I, I may use the word native, but uh, you know, I, I never I never identify myself as an American Indian, a Native American or or uh, or anything like that. Um Look, there, there are a lot of people who, who try to get into this, uh, this discussion about single point origin theory. And we've heard everything from, you know, uh, I, land bridges across, you know, you know from Siberia. Um, and I don't question that other people have made it to our territories um, uh, through other means. But to suggest that our population came solely from Africa, I think is just as wrong as to suggest that our population came solely from, from a land bridge or, you know, some or corridor through, you know, um, through the Ice Age. Uh, I, I think there is likely a combination. As far as I'm concerned, we were always here. And most of the, um, the archaeological evidence about when there was human population on this, uh, on this continent has now pushed that window back to... Uh, as far as 130,000 years ago. So um, I think anybody who tries to definitively say that, that our population solely came from one place, uh, and that place is Africa, or that place is Asia, or that place is the South Pacific, um, there may be multiple truths along those lines. But, but I think the idea that, that, our, that our entire population solely came from, um, from one location uh, is 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 probably inaccurate, and it, and frankly, it's it's a premise that that that, that I reject. Um, again, I don't know much about this um, uh, this this other uh, claim to the the U.S. presidency, um, so I'm not going to speak too much on that one. But I do appreciate the call, and look, I I'm willing to have that conversation. I think there's there's very little question that uh, that navigators could and did make it from. Uh, from Africa, from the west coast of Africa to the east coast of what is now considered uh, Brazil, I don't think that I don't think that's an unreasonable premise. But to suggest that our entire population came from that um, from that contact and those voyages is is probably you know a, a bit of a stretch. So I'll leave it there. All right, uh, let me go to the next caller. Next caller, uh, uh, what's your name and where are you calling from? Okay, it's Joan from Manhattan. I'm sorry. And what, I wanted to say something. I'm sorry. What's the first name again? Yeah, Joan from Manhattan. Oh, I, well, thanks for calling. I appreciate it. Okay, yeah, I wanted to say something, but before I say that, while I was waiting, you mentioned the origins of people coming possibly from Africa. Um, I have heard uh, fairly good evidence that um, there were there were visits from Chinese people coming across the Pacific to kind of what we would call Central America, and the evidence for this seems to be there are some some sculptures in Central America which have uh, Chinese-style uh, mustaches. And Native people, I didn't know this until recently, Native people don't have mustaches and, and beards. So this seems to be, and, they, and some people did try to make a trip across the Pacific from China with a, a kind of a, a junk, a, a boat that the Chinese would have had in centuries ago, way before Columbus. And they did make it in those ships over to Central America. So what do you think about that? And then I want to make my other point. <laughs> well, first off, I, I don't disagree that there are probably many points of entry for people to have made it to this continent uh, well prior to uh, to Christopher Columbus or, or you know, um, 
uh, Leif Erikson or, or anybody else. So, I mean, I think there's, um, I think there is probably ample um, likelihood and evidence to suggest that the people from the South Pacific, from Asia, um, uh, from China, uh, from the, uh, uh, from Siberia, from Africa, um, and, and, and again, you know, when you think about, uh, you know, uh, Leif Erikson, people coming from Atlantic, Pacific, South Pacific, uh, um, but I don't think any of one of those can, can accurately be attributed to a single point origin theory to where native people come from. So I'll leave it at that. Um, go ahead with your next question. Yeah. The idea was that the Chinese people just kind of came, take a look, and went back home. They didn't stay. <laughs> um, okay, well, my other question, Buffy St. Marie was on the radio about a year or two ago on NYC, and she said something that really surprised me, and I just wanted to verify it with you. Uh, she said that um, there were more Native people, and she said she was clearly not, you know, comparing tragedies in any way at all, but just for the shocking fact that there were more Native people enslaved and sent to Europe than there were Africans enslaved here. She said it was mostly in Spain, and the records are mostly in Spanish, and, um, and most Americans know nothing about this. I knew nothing about this. So what can you what can you say about that? Was there this transatlantic uh, trade going the other way, taking kidnapped Native people over to Spain, and what kind of work were they forced to do there? What 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 can you tell me about that? Well, there, there's language in um, or there's uh, from Columbus's own journal that uh, that lay out bringing uh, Native slaves back to to Spain. The first the first transatlantic slave ship was were Native people from the Caribbean islands. Uh, that were brought back to Spain, and some of that was being those they they were young girls that were being sent back to be in the in the sex slave trade. There, so mm. uh, Columbus talked about how you know how many Castellanos would be uh, you know paid for 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 a, a nine year old or a twelve year old girl. I mean, so um, mm. in terms of sheer numbers, look, one of the things that that people don't realize when you, they talk about slavery, American slavery in in, in particular, was that only about half a million, um, and I, I, I don't mean to diminish that number, Africans were brought to North America. Only about half a million. Most of the slave trade was about treating uh, Africans as, you know, as, as chattel slavery. So that population would grow to millions. Because, you know, so there, there's no question that there were millions of, of uh African Americans by this time, uh, and I hate I I never know what the right word is, but um, African Americans that were enslaved in the United States by the time you get into the 1860s, before the uh, slavery would be ultimately be abolished, uh, the African slaves represented the 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 highest value of any uh, industry assets that the United States ever known. But in terms of sheer numbers, there's no question that that. Uh, native people were sent not only to um, uh, to Europe, but many Native um, people who were enslaved got sent to the Caribbean to work with uh, to work on, on sugar plantations. So, I mean, and that's part of the history that's even associated with the with the Shinnecock and the Puspatuck. Many of their people were actually sent to the Caribbean to be enslaved there because trying to enslave indigenous people in our own homelands was was not very effective because you know our ability to know the land and to and traverse the land and, and to make our way 
uh, in a land that we were you know, had thousands of years of familiarity with, is um, was not very uh, uh, cost effective. It wasn't a very effective strategy. But taking the people away from their homelands, which is you know part of the you know, which is the logic behind the African slave trade, as well as taking native people and enslaving them in in uh, in places that they are unfamiliar with. That's you know, and 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 you gotta it's gotta be said that. The slavery that the United States was responsible for was unique throughout all the world. I mean, everybody would say, oh, yeah, other cultures did slaves. But nobody had the industry of slavery the way the United States did. And I think you know, anybody who, who tried to, su to suggest that other countries were as guilty um, in, the, you know, in that era of slavery as the United States, um, you're, you're, you're really not comparing numbers. And, and again, that's not to say that there wasn't a significant number of... Um, Africans who were enslaved in Europe and Native people who were enslaved in Europe. I just don't know if the numbers really uh, equate, um, and I don't even know if they, they need to be. But uh, but I, I appreciate that. And 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 look, I'm a big fan of uh, Buffy St. Marie. She's um, she's a great example of somebody who was taken from her culture, raised by white people, and then you know effectively became a voice for Native people. And uh, you know and for that, I I am eternally grateful to not only her. Her music, but her advocacy. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's go to another caller. Uh, caller, you're up next. Um, uh, what's your name and where are you calling from? Hi, uh, this is L from Harlem. Hi, L. Thanks for calling. Yes, uh, I wanted to say one thing in terms of the single point of origin. It's my theory that the single point of origin was Alpha Centauri, and it is a reason why um, the Christians that were here were so adamant about destroying the native religions. Well, again, for me, I, I personally have, have uh, I struggle with any, um, and the fact that these, these even be, are called theories, you know, at some point, even language gets, gets, gets manipulated. If you have a thesis, <laughs> or a, a hypothesis, I should say, that, you know, a theory has to be, a, a, a theory by definition is supposed to be an accumulation of scientific data that leads you to a direction, not one where you have a hypothesis and you only look at the evidence that would support that hypothesis. And and I think sometimes we saw that with the Bering Strait theories and, and some of these things are what called theories. And um, so so I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what is behind the aggression that um, uh, that the Christian nations of Europe had towards not just indigenous people, but but any, um, uh, uh, not just indigenous people here, but uh, any indigenous belief systems that existed elsewhere. So so that, I, I'm not sure. I, uh, um, I, I have a difficult time, you know, really um, putting a value on a single point origin theory. So that's, that's, but that's, a, that's my, my view of it. But I appreciate it. Um, all right, let me go to another caller. Uh, caller, you're up next. What's your? Uh, before I do that, first off, I'm I'm a little surprised. I, I'd love to hear from somebody from Washington, and since we are running this show live in Washington, the number again is two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. That's two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. And that's not to just uh, to, to disrespect my callers from New York. Um, I do appreciate those who call in not only for this show, but when I do open up the phone lines on my Thursday show, I, I, I always appreciate hearing from, uh, from the public. But uh, let me go to the caller. Caller, you're up next. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hi. There you are. Hello? Yeah. Oh, here I is. 
Hi, this is George from New Jersey. Got me? Hey, George. How you doing? All right. Good show. Good show. You sound uh, very opinionated, which is good. I like it. And you don't seem to be uh, afraid to tell them what you think. So let's bring you up to the 21st century or 22nd century. I don't know which one we're in now. Uh, I mean, I see your, your, in the Indian story played out over in Israel where the Palestinians' land has been taken. They've been pushed into a jail and they've been treated like slaves and everything else. Uh, what is your opinion on Israel's right to return and the conflicts you know, that it created? And like, uh, whose side would you be on? Would you be in favor of the Indians doing a similar thing, trying to uh, kill everybody and whatever, take over the land? And, you know, how far back do we go? Who owned the land? And, you know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, everybody's been kicked off lands all over the world, for all over, you know, many times. So, you know, where do you stand? And, and I'm sure, you know, the white man was good enough to give you the holy book. And don't you see that being fulfilled right now with Israel doing all of this and with all of this? And isn't Israel, uh, could it be a false flag for Israel, these, these missiles that went off and they were so surprised? Could it be a 9-11 false flag so that we can get involved with Israel going into Iran so that the Fed can take over Iran and get, then I'll go to Syria then Russia will come in with the Chinese army into Israel, just like the book says. But go ahead and let's hear what you think about the Palestinians and the Indian relationship and how much they are so much alike in my eyes. Well, I, I agree with you. I'm not, you know, without getting into, you know, rolling this rock too far down a hill to, um, you know, to say, you know, where this all leads or, or who's responsible for what. There's no question that what Israel has done to Palestinians in their homeland is, is, you know, very similar to what Native people have experienced here in uh, in North America and South America. There's there's little question about that. And the idea that that Israel will make their claim to the land based on some biblical or or, or whatever some some holy texts, um, you know, to, to suggest that they that that God Himself gave them that uh, gave them that land and and that is their their whole premise for being able to displace the. Uh, the Palestinian population, to me, is absurd. I mean, and the and the United States, for all of their concern about theocracies in the Middle East, and which are always based on the condemnation of uh, Islamic theocracies, the United States has no problem supporting Israel's um, existence, which is which is unquestionably theocracy based. And so, look, I I. I clearly side with um, the Palestinian people um, on their abilities to to maintain uh, their lands, which the which Israel is violating, uh, in spite of whatever has come out of the United Nations. The United Nations has called for a freeze on on new settlements, but but Israel keeps doing it. So the United States wants to always, you know, utilize the United Nations. Um, when they're condemning their foes, but when it's their allies, they seem to you know, have no problem, you know, supporting a country in spite of them being in a strict violation of, uh, you know, of of UN protocols and that kind of stuff. Um, look, I've never suggested that that native people need to rid their lands of every non-native person here. That's, that seems to be what Israel's trying to do with, with their claims. But I also find it ironic that, that Israel would make these claims that because um, 
they once lived there, that they should always be the one thing control. If we made that, that that same argument, people would think we were absurd or, or that we're insane. And Israel, the, you know, the, the Jews who went into Israel, uh, you know, after World War II, were a very much a minority. And, you know, so you had, you know, essentially, you know, the, the, the same kind of apartheid that, uh, that the minority of white people, you know, were, were perpetrating against black people in, in Africa. That, that's exactly what's, what's existed there. So, um, look, and I don't hate Jewish people. I mean, I, I do have problems with, uh, with, with anybody who, you know, kills in the name of their religion. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of, uh, of war in general. Uh, I think defending yourself is one thing. Defending your beliefs uh, to the point where you, you, where you have to murder people uh, because of their beliefs is is problematic. So um, you know, look, I I make little look. I I have I express little question about who I sympathize with in this in this conflict um, uh, in uh, the territories of, of the Palestine. Um, but you know, I I realize that that's not necessarily a popular view. Um, you know, I I'll, I'll, I have mentioned recently. Uh, look, I also had no problem holding Ruth Bader Ginsburg to task, and some people thought I was attacking not only Israel but uh, uh, liberals and women in my criticism of some of the rulings that this that a Jewish woman on the Supreme Court, who you know, basically supported the doctrine of Christian discovery against Native people in a ruling that she made against the Oneidas, um, and and who basically had some pretty overtly racist things to say about folks like Colin Kaepernick and and others. Um, I have no problem, you know, calling, holding people to task and, and look, and people are free to hold me to task, you know, for some of the opinions that I express, but, you know, but be, to be clear, as much as I wanted to defend our autonomy and our distinction, I am not talking about, you know, some, some, you know, massive, you know, um, effort to, to kill all white people, uh, living on our lands. It's, it's not about that. I, most of my problem has to do with, with the government uh, and the institutions, you know, both, whether it's media, whether it's corporate, you know, institutions, or whether it's uh, state or federal institutions, that's where most of my, uh, uh, you know, my ad adversarial nature comes from. So uh, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. I, I appreciate the call, though, and and I did mention it earlier I, I, um, in the show. I I I would be remiss not to bring up the fact that on Indigenous Peoples Day, we're seeing an Indigenous population being wiped out. Uh, or, or, you know, uh, over years, not just this current incident between the, the Palestinians and um, in Israel. This is an ongoing conflict that, that is perpetrated primarily by Israel, and there's no question in my mind for that. But, um, all right, um, let's, uh, let's go to another, well, no, I guess we're about wrapped up. We're at the top of the hour. So I, I, let me just say this. I want to thank um, uh, Linda Perry and Katia Stitt for, for giving me this time slots on WPFW and WBAI. I want to thank you for listening. And, uh, you know, catch me on Wednesday with uh, Living for the City with Michael G. Haskins and uh, Resistance Radio on Thursday in New York and on Friday in Washington, D.C. Yahweh.